On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about cannabis because McMaster has a new program starting that if you want to take it to learn all about it, it's not how to grow it, just in case you're wondering. It's the other stuff around cannabis. We're going to be chatting about phone privacy. Specifically, is your telephone listening to you? I don't mean the person on the other end of the phone, your phone itself. When you hear what we're going to talk about, it may creep you out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. And J.J. Hunter, former Hamilton Bulldog once upon a time, is going to be among those. It's his family, actually. So among five guys, all of his brothers, singing the national anthem at the Blue Jays' home opener on Thursday. We talked to J.J., catch up with him about that experience. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It's about six, seven months now that this country has had cannabis legalized, that people have been able to smoke and, I guess, bake and whatever else they want to do with their cannabis. I don't know. We're not doing it here in the studio, I'll tell you that. But anyway, you can do what you're going to do. We're allowed allowed to do it here in Canada. Well, this has, of course, led to, I think, lots of questions that people have had. There are some who were very familiar with the use and effects and everything else of cannabis, legally or otherwise, before this. But now that it is legal, there are lots and lots of questions. Well, this has led to McMaster University announcing that it is going to be hosting a new continuing education program called the Science of Cannabis. One of the people who's going to be behind it is a the guy who is the Peter Boris Chair in Addictions Research, the director of the Peter Boris Chair for Addictions Research, the co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. His name is Dr. James McKillop, and he joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Good to talk to you, Scott. Always love having you on here. Uh, tell me about this course. What, what, what do you teach up in the science of cannabis that people don't know? Well, we really wanted to hit what we think are the three most important topics. The first one is the fundamentals, what's in the plant, what does the plant do to the body and brain, how does it work. Uh, the second one is focused on risks and harms from cannabis, and then the third one is medical applications of cannabis. So we're really trying to uh, think about both sides of the coin. So this is not, in case anybody is thinking, and, and when I first saw this, I was like, huh, I wonder, this is not a horticultural program on how to build a greenhouse and grow better pot. That's right. Uh, you, you probably uh, know that McMaster is not well known for its agricultural program, <laughs> although maybe there are some. But really, this is intended for uh, health professionals, broadly defined, uh, physicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, nurses, first responders, but also people who may be interested in uh, professional roles in the cannabis industry. We're really hoping to give people from a variety of different backgrounds the kind of education they need for the contemporary environment. Okay, so the last group of people you just mentioned who sound like the curious non-medical people at this point, I I understand for sure. Shouldn't the people in the first groups you mentioned, though, shouldn't this stuff already be familiar to them? Or are we talking about something that is still very unfamiliar to a lot of people? The the reality is there is still a lot of uh, appetite for information because a lot of professionals don't feel like this was covered when they went to school. And, and there isn't a, uh, a, a, a lot of resources out there in terms of continuing education. So one of the most common requests we get to the DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research is for more information and for better access to the real evidence either around risks or around medical benefits. But if I'm a doctor 
Uh, and I, like, I'm not trying to be ironic and I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all here. If I'm a doctor, what do I need to know about the use of cannabis that I might not know because a patient is going to be coming in and seeing me? What are the, what are the, what could a patient actually be having that I would need to know to be able to help them? Well, I think that what's really interesting is that it's a very evolving landscape. And so the cannabis that a lot of people think about is plant cannabis that maybe was uh, relatively weak and uh, was really not considered a medical treatment for anything, which would be the cannabis that was around for most of the last few decades. But nowadays, there are a lot of different kinds of cannabis. There's cannabis oils. There are different uh, formulations. There are capsules. There are different combinations of products that are intended to treat different conditions. And there's a lot more information also about how cannabis interacts with other drugs and may lead to different sensitivities or adverse reactions. And so it's really a very different landscape than when a lot of physicians first went to school. And with that changing landscape, there's a need for new knowledge. And there's also a better appreciation for where there may be benefit and where there may be real harm. It was interesting because when I first heard that this course was going to be offered and then I saw that you were involved with it, I I, I actually tried to do a little bit of digging because we've had you on here before and you're not someone who is, you're not Cheech and Chong. I mean, you are not a wild proponent of this stuff. You are someone who has preached caution about this. Uh, And I wasn't sure that this plan, this program now was a cautionary program or if it was a dive right in. It sounds like it's the former rather than the latter. It it really tries to uh, prize objectivity over everything else. It's not pro-cannabis, it's not anti-cannabis, it's pro-evidence. And so in some cases, I think people will leave thinking, well, this seems like a really great application of cannabis for a medical condition. And in other cases, they may say, this is much more risky than I realized, and people should be really careful before they start using cannabis for uh, a different condition. So I think that we're trying to really make sense of uh, both sides of the coin without really trying to ask anyone to take our opinion, but to focus on the evidence. Are the doctors that you are speaking to, and I'm sure you are speaking to doctors, are most of them as cautious about it as you are when, when dealing with this stuff? You know, there's a real spectrum. I think that there are some physicians who have been criticized for being uh, too cautious and uh, not open-minded to uh, new evidence. There are other physicians who are criticized for being uh, excessively liberal and giving patients authorizations and then not following them carefully and not monitoring their progress. Uh, I, I think that many of the physicians who are affiliated with the center and are actively practicing in Hamilton that, that I know of seem to be responsible and thoughtful uh, clinicians, but the reality is there are a lot of unknowns, and this isn't a drug like other drugs. It's not prescribed. It's, it's authorized, and so there's a lot of, there are gray areas that I think uh, can lead to um, uh, potential risks, and I think that that's, that's the reality of the, the contemporary landscape. And, Doctor, we've now had, and I think it's, what, seven, six, seven months now that m- cannabis has been legalized in this country, and I know that proponents are saying, see, the foundations of our society haven't crumbled because of this. All you reefer madness people were all just making a too big a thing out of this. You were all wrong. Are they right? 
That's a great question, Scott. I think that uh, it's too early to tell. We're collecting some data locally here in Hamilton following 1,500 people over the course of legalization, actually. And we're, uh, we're collecting our uh, six-month follow-up in uh, a, a couple months' time. Um, and what we know is that uh, people started out with fairly favorable opinions. And I think that what, what remains to be seen is how those opinions change and what the consequences are. So I don't think we're really going to know the answer to the effects for probably as long as two years, but I think we have to keep an open mind until then. Interesting. So this study was started after legalization that you're no, doing? it started before. I'm sorry. We, we, we collected our data the month before legalization. To get a baseline. Uh, that's right. Okay. And, and then we're following people at uh, six months, 12 months, and 18 months following legalization. To look for what? So we're interested in uh, what what changes, and uh, we we really don't know if people's attitudes are going to change towards cannabis. Are people going to think uh, more favorably about cannabis because that often forecasts how behavior changes? But we're also measuring what people tell us about what kind of products they're using, how much they're using. We're interested in whether or not if cannabis use changes, does alcohol use change too? Does smoking behavior change? And so what we really want to know is how in Hamilton, and more broadly in Canada, does behavior change as cannabis legalization really takes effect? Because the other reality is there haven't been storefronts, there haven't been commercially available edibles. Just because legalization happened, the full transition to a legal regulated market hasn't fully taken root. So I think that it's, it's not going to be clear what the effects are and until that uh, that full transition happens. Will this be a uh, philosophical and emotional study only, or are there physiological parts of this? Will the blood tests and other uh, intellectual tests and all these things go along with this? So in other experiments, we are doing uh, more cognitive testing, and we're collecting DNA and other biological measures. This is a simply a surveillance study. It's using a, uh, a group of individuals who were in earlier studies in the Peter Boris Center who are now part of an online surveillance cohort. So all the information will be collected online, so we don't have biological data. Uh, but in other studies, we're collecting biological markers also. Because one of the things that you have said on here in the past, and it's it's uh, it's always struck me as stunning, is that, I mean, how long has cannabis been around as something that people have used? I mean, it's a long, long time, and there's very little in the way of science on this. Well, I, I think that um, it's not that there's very little. It's that often people take... Uh, the, the gaps that exist in very optimistic ways and overemphasize some findings and uh, overlook other findings. So I think that part of the, uh, the, the new certificate in cannabis science is going to be making sure that people know what the evidence is and what it isn't and what we know and what we don't know and what we need to know. So I think that it, it's not that there's no research. It's that um, we certainly need more and we, we need more, especially in certain areas, especially when it comes to clinical trials, for example. But do you expect, honestly, that whatever you find is going to change anyone's mind? Or are the people who are very much in favor, even if your studies were to come out and say, this destroys your brain, they're going to say, well, come on, that's, you know, those are the people you took. And even if you find that it comes out as it does absolutely nothing and it's completely safe, those who are opposed to it are going to say, give it more time. Well, I think that it, it's hard for uh, me to think that our data will radically transform people's uh, perceptions in, in the context of one single study. But I do think that 
part of the reason cannabis legalization happened is that there was an increasing appreciation that many Canadians were using cannabis and not experiencing a lot of adverse consequences, and that there were adverse consequences resulting from uh, the illegal status. So I, I think that um, no single study will change people's minds, but if we do see big upticks in the number of people who are admitted to the emergency department for cannabis-induced psychosis, if we do see the age of cannabis use go down and down among Canadian adolescents, if we see uh, a, a big uptick in uh, traffic accidents, and we, we see a, uh, a, a profile of negative consequences, I think people will be open to those kinds of findings. No, no single study will give us the final answer, but I think that's why it's so important that there be a, a national effort to try to study the effects of cannabis legalization and cannabis in general more. I only have 10 seconds because I'm already over. If someone wanted to take this online course, how do they do it? They just Google uh, McMaster Science of Cannabis or go to cannabisresearch.mcmaster.ca and they'll find a, a quick link to the course. Dr. James McKillop, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am assuming that you use a computer. If you don't, you're one of the four in the greater Hamilton area who doesn't. Congratulations. But I'm assuming you use a computer. I'm assuming you go online. And I'm assuming that occasionally you type in a search for something because you're go- something in the commerce world. You're going to look for, what does it cost me to get a flight to California? So you type in flights to California. Or, I want to buy a new baseball cap. You type in baseball caps. And invariably, if you've been paying attention, you will notice that shortly after you do those searches, there will be ads that pop up on your screen in other websites or whatever else that weirdly, he says, with the irony not being a surprise, knowing this is what happens, you will see ads pop up for those very things. If you've typed in searching for flights to California, somehow WestJet will have a flight to California or Canada will that will pop up as an ad on your screen. It's a little spooky. It's a little creepy, but we've come to accept it. We've essentially come to accept the idea that if I go looking for something in the purchase world, it's seemingly fair game to feed me with ads for that. However, what I want to talk about today is a little bit different from that. It's sort of a next level on that because a reporter for The Sun Online, which is an English paper, discovered that the same thing kind of was happening to her, but not after she typed in a search, after she'd had a telephone conversation with a friend. She started noticing that words and things she was mentioning with her friend were now popping up as ads. Then she decided to do an experiment. So she started mentioning words that she'd never used before. Here's what she wrote. Within days, I was inundated with ads related to those key words. Firstly, I got an advertisement offering 50% off my first purchase of business cards because she had mentioned business cards, something I'd never thought about or searched for before, but had talked about on my phone. While I happily eat meat, I also told my friend I had plans to cook up some healthy vegan dishes. Sure enough, I was subjected to an advertisement for a healthy vegan meal plan later that day. Uh, this, this is a little bit spooky, maybe. Let me bring in our favorite internet lawyer, and I don't mean we found him on the internet like Saul from Better Call Saul. I mean, he covers internet law. Uh, his name is Alan Mendelson, just back from a vacation where he caught some form of the bubonic plague. So we're glad he's able to make it today. Alan, thanks for doing this. Uh, Scott, it's a pleasure as always, but I have some bad news. I'm one of the four people in Montreal who doesn't use a computer, so I don't know if I can answer your question. Uh, I, don't, I, <laughs> I somehow doubt that. Um, uh, Alan, are computers 
Are our phones, pardon me, are our phones now listening in on our conversations? Well, they probably are. You know, the question that you, you tend to ask me is when we do these conversations is, are you surprised by this? And my answer is almost invariably no. Um, and I'm not particularly surprised. To me, it's, a, it's sort of a logical extension of, you know, as you were discussing in the introduction, um, when you search, then all of a sudden you see ads for things. When you using a free email service, all of a sudden you're starting to see ads for things. When you're using a free texting service, all of a sudden you're starting to see ads for things always related to what you were typing about. So I'm not sure it's such a huge leap to go from what you are typing about to what you are talking about. Except for the fact that I think for most people, they would think that talking on the phone is a somehow it's a different thing. It's a private thing that you're not agreeing to go through a website. It's a it's a private phone call. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, and that is the disturbing part of it. And I you know, this is sort of anecdotal evidence, this Sun article, and although I, I find her story quite convincing, to be honest with you, um, but a lot of it may depend on your settings and what apps are on your phone and, and so forth and so forth. But yes, it, it is significantly disturbing in that people tend to view phone conversations and voice conversations as more private than what you type into a computer. Now, that is a false assumption, but it's understandable that people believe that. Well, I'm not even sure. And as I was thinking about this, I'm not even sure that it's our phone conversation that is being tapped into because when you talk into the speaker, the microphone on your phone, it's the same microphone to talk on the phone as it is to talk to Siri. So it, it may not be that it's listening to the phone conversation. It's listening to your voice and apps are picking it up. I don't know if that's parsing something too deeply, but it's... it's no, you know, I, I, I'm a lawyer. I live for parsing things too deeply, <laughs> Scott, please. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I agree with you that, yes, it is the same microphone. And, you know, the, the story in the sun was not, you know, not quite distinctive as to what she was talking and who she was talking to and so forth. And yes, so that Siri, uh, if you're using an iOS phone, would certainly be using that same microphone and may be using, or Google Assistant, if you're on an Android phone, um, is using that same thing and may be turning it. And there are any other number of apps out there that have some sort of, some sort of voice recognition software attached to it. Um, that's very straightforward software now and you know these days. So yes, uh, not necessarily a phone conversation, but anything you may say into your phone. So really, while you may think you're having a phone conversation, it would be no different than talking to Alexa or talking to your Google Mini or something else around your house that has a microphone and a web browser hooked up to it. You know, I, 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 I'm not. I'd rather not give a. Again, I'd rather not give a blanket statement as to whether that's true or not. Again, we're talking about one reporter who did certain things here. Um, and depending on the settings of her phone, depending on uh, her actual phone, depending on her Internet service provider, her telecommunications provider, et cetera, et cetera, these things may not be true for everyone out there. 
Um, but yes, it's it's certainly it raises a lot of question. There's no question about that. Would it be illegal if it was through your phone, and would it be illegal if it was just through the phone device, but an app that was picking up your words instead of the phone service? Well, I think in both cases the answer would be yes. Um, whether it's illegal from a criminal standpoint, I'm not necessarily sure, but from a privacy law standpoint, I can absolutely say yes. And the basis of privacy law in this country is what we call informed consent. You agree to give up certain pieces of personal information to a company, to a private company, whether that's Facebook, whether that's your local bank, whether whoever that may be, as long as you understand that they are going to do things with that private information and you have given your consent to give that private information. Uh, you know, so I consent to give my bank uh, my financial information so that they can grant me a loan um, or whatever the case may be. Now, what I don't give consent to is to say something into my phone and then have some application or the phone itself, whether it's owned by, you know, whether it's run by Apple or Google or whatever, I do not give consent for them to spit back advertisements to me that relate to things that I've said. So if you were to take the most extreme example, um, you could, for example, call your doctor and say, look, uh, Dr. X, I've got a problem. I'd like to make an appointment to see you. And the receptionist says, fine, we'll see you next Thursday. And then all of a sudden you're seeing advertisements for uh, the condition that you're going to see your doctor about, some drug company that believes they have a cure to that. So that is the most personal of personal information, your name and some sort of health condition that is now being used to serve you advertisements. You did certainly did not consent to that sort of thing and would violate every privacy law we have in the country. So, you know, that's the most extreme example, but it sort of indicates uh, the issues that relate to this. So if suddenly little blue pill ads are popping up on your phone, you can be sure that you were talking about it with someone perhaps. Uh, <laughs> and not you, not you, not just you. <laughs> the, the greater you, the, you know, you know what I mean. Um, right. Now, here's the thing about this, though. And again, assuming and I don't know if it's a fair assumption or not, but assuming it's not the phone company that is listening, but it could be an app in the phone. And because you're talking into the same microphone, an app or some sort of browser or something could be picking this up. I'm assuming that there are settings on the phone that the company could say, yeah, but you can turn off those settings so that this doesn't happen. My question is, how many people, and you would know this better than me, how many people feel very confident and very comfortable navigating their settings enough that they feel like they could do this and know what they're doing? It's, uh, it's very low. It's, we're, we're talking about less than 5% kind of thing. I, you know, I, I think those numbers are improving. It used to be virtually none. Uh, I think people have become much more sensitive to privacy issues and data sharing issues with respect to any device they have, you know, and and in some ways we could sort of thank the large data breaches that have happened and the, the, the Cambridge analyticas and so forth um, that for better or for worse have made the average person much more sensitive to data and privacy issues. But at the same time, um, it's on both, 
major sets of phones, iOS and Android phones, to find all of the settings you need to turn off to completely block everyone from having any sort of access to your information is difficult. Even I might have difficulty doing it. Plus, then you're also losing some features that you may actually want on your phone if you're going to do it. If I want to use my maps or use a GPS or anything like that, I've got to have that on. Absolutely. You know, and if you have plugged your phone into your car and you have uh, voice, you know, activation enabled and you say, uh, hello, Google Maps, please take me to the closest uh, McDonald's. And then, you know, Google knows that you like McDonald's. Will you see McDonald's ads? Well, yeah, that's uh, that could be an issue. Uh, in this story, interestingly, in the Sun story, and the, the British Sun, not the Toronto Sun, uh, there was a, they had spoken to a cyber expert, and here's the thing he said about it. Imagine how much more valuable advertising is to a company selling a product when they know with a fair amount of accuracy that you're actively interested in that product. This seems to me to that he's onto something here, because if you can say, I am going to wherever, and you're not doing a random search, th- this, is, this is exactly what advertisers would want. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. It is the, the holy grail of advertising, and it, it already exists. I mean, there's a number of names for it, whether you call it targeted, ad, targeted advertising, contextual advertising, um, there, you know, there's other more sort of even more technical terms as to how those things work. And I'm sure every listener out there has had the experience where they were looking around on some particular website. It's happened. I always give this example. I was shopping for a set of cross-country skis, and I was clicking around on a major sports retailer's website. And for the next three months, everywhere I went on the Internet, I saw ads for skis that I would want to buy. And that, you know, what we're talking about today is just the logical extension of that sort of contextual advertising. And it's an advertising that is, A, effective for the advertiser, B, more cost-effective for the advertiser. And, you know, it's uh, some people would argue that it's useful to you as a consumer. Um, if I know that those skis that I kept looking at are now $50 off, right. yep. well, I may go and buy them. So yeah, maybe. you can look at it both ways. Uh, that is Alan Mendelson. He is an internet lawyer, and uh, we really appreciate you battling through the sickness today to join us. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, as always. I'll battle through any time for you, Scott. Appreciate it, Alan. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Thursday afternoon at the Blue Jays' home opener, they are starting. They may not have quite the team that they did a couple of years ago. They may finish last in the American League East. They may even finish last in the entire America. They could finish last in the entire major leagues. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Because Thursday afternoon at the Blue Jays home opener, my next guest is going to be singing the national anthem at Rogers Center along with his brothers. Which is, I don't care where the Blue Jays are going to finish up, which is a very, very cool thing to do. And that is cool enough, but beyond that, what makes this story even better, especially for us here in Hamilton, is that once upon a time, he was a center playing at was then what was then Cops Coliseum every night for the Hamilton Bulldogs. His name is J.J. Hunter. He is one of the Hunter brothers. He joins us now. J.J., how are you? 
Hey Scott, I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, you know what? This um, this is kind of cool. Yeah, it sure is. And we need a little bit of optimism here as far as the Blue Jays, don't we? Do you think? Or uh, well, no, I, uh, I think optimism is a good thing. I, a realism may be something different, but I'm I'm okay with optimism. Yeah. Okay. No, I think <laughs> I think it's fair. No, we. Uh, it is very cool. You know, I've been a Blue Jays fan ever since their World Series championships and uh, have been all the way through. And, and then a couple of years back when they made their runs, uh, it was a pretty exciting time. And, uh, you know, for all of us Blue Jays fans that have been cheering, cheering them on for so many years. But uh, to be able to be part of the celebrations and their home opener in this way is, uh, is really, really special, not just for me, but for my brothers as well. If I had said to you 10 years ago, when you were, or roughly 10 years ago, when you were still here at Hamilton, I think it was about 11 years ago, or so you were here, but if I had asked you around then, if you thought that you would be performing on the big stage in Toronto, on the ice as a player, or on the field as a singer, which one would you have said? Uh, yeah, I would have definitely guessed the hockey route uh, at that point in time. Uh, but that's been part of the fun of it too, Scott, is that uh, when we all kind of made our way back home, each of us brothers, because we all played hockey, and uh, injuries brought a lot of us back home. And when we started talking and, and the music kind of started to take off, one of the things that we set out as, as one of our goals was to maybe return back to some of these arenas um, that we had played hockey in growing up, but this time with a microphone or a guitar rather than a hockey stick. And so, you know, these opportunities that are coming up, I know that it's the ball, the ball diamond on Thursday, but uh, getting these opportunities through the music as opposed to the hockey is uh, it's different than maybe we would have envisioned or, or scribed it out a few years ago, but at the same time, it's, it's still very, very exciting. Now, you grew up in Shaunavon, Saskatchewan, right? That's right. Okay, and that and that's a familiar ta- uh, familiar name to a lot of people because there's been a number of people that have come out of that town. And I'm trying to think who would Haley Wickenheiser be the biggest name that would have come from there? I would say so. Haley uh, was just a couple years older than I was. I went to school with her younger brother Ross, and and actually played up with her team as we were growing up, and then trained with her in Calgary. But we also had. Braden Coburn, who's still playing with the Tampa Bay Lightning, was a great friend of my brother Luke's, and he's still doing a great job uh, patrolling the blue line for, for Tampa. And uh, there's a bunch of other guys, Rhett Warner, Sean Van Allen, um, Brian Trache was just down the road in, in Valmarie. Of course, Patrick Marlowe was down the road in the other direction at Aneroid. And, and so there have been a lot of different players that have come out of um out of Shaunavon, and even Cole Lind was a second-round draft pick for the Vancouver Canucks. He's playing with Utica right now. So uh, it's been a, a quite a hockey hotbed for a lot of years. Anybody ever brought the Stanley Cup back there? Because it could happen with Braden this year. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. Um, but uh, Travis Mullen is from just north of Swift Current, which is just over an hour away, and uh, he won the Stanley Cup of course, with Anaheim, and so I actually saw Trapper not too long ago, and so uh, he's a Southwest boy, and so we consider him our own, uh, both myself and my brother Dusty got a chance to play with Travis growing up. Uh, Dusty played with him in Swifter, and then I played with him in Kelowna, so, um, you know, there have been some Stanley Cups down in this area, which is pretty cool as well. And when you say your brother's name is Dusty, I think there's only about seven places in the world that you can live and grow up and have a brother named Dusty, and Saskatchewan will be one of them. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There's never exactly. been a Dusty born in Quebec. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> no, but here's something really cool, though, and I want to get to a bunch of these things, but uh, your family, you have an amazing family, and we'll get to your brothers in a moment because they are going to be singing with you, but uh, I, 
I went through this and I had, I had kind of forgotten some of these things. Your dad, tell me about a little bit of the stories of these just quickly. Your dad was a nationally ranked figure skater. That's correct. Uh, dad skated at the national level. He also toured uh, Europe and South America with Holiday and Ice. And uh, one of his claims to fame is he was one of the first uh, guys ever to do a backflip on ice. We've got a picture in our house of, of him right upside down uh, performing at, at one of the ice shows doing a backflip. And so uh, he, uh, he was a good hockey player as well. But um, when he hit his early teens, he, he jumped ship and went to uh, figure skating and, and had uh, quite a lot of success there. That ever happened to you on the ice, do a backflip? Un- inadvertently, um, yeah, yeah, that, it, w- it would have been uh, <laughs> not uh, according to my plan being on the ice. Yeah, maybe a couple. Your uncle. Now, this is an amazing story because your uncle. People will not. Well, they'll they'll know the name, and I think they'll know where it comes from. Your uncle was Jungle Jim Hunter, right? Who was one of the original Crazy Canucks with Steve Podborski and Ken Reed and those guys. That's right. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, Uncle Jim is the one that we trained with all through the hockey years for uh, for a decade as we went through our junior ranks and, and then into the pro uh, circuit. Uh, we trained every summer with, with our Uncle Jim, and uh, Jungle, as we call him, has a long history of, of athletics and, and really made his way through grit and determination, and, and um, we were fortunate to work alongside him for that many years and and have his influence and uh, along the way. So he experienced a lot of success in, in downhill racing. And when you really get to know him and start hearing the stories, um, crazy is an apt word to put beside his name, that's for sure. <laughs> well, we may as well continue with that then, because you also had an uncle who was a professional bull rider. Yeah, that's my uncle Claire. And so that's the older brother uh, to Jungle and my father. And uh, he was a bull rider. He was a hairdresser. He was a horse trainer. He had actually a lot of different talents. And he still lives here in Shaunavan now. And uh, he also was a chef. And so um, Uncle Claire, in some ways, was almost the most talented of the bunch, even though uh, maybe he didn't quite get the national recognition of, of some of the other boys. He was also a very good musician and uh, and was in part, you know, part of what uh, helped us along our way. When we first started singing, uh, it was together as a family, and, and my mother and father actually sang with my Uncle Claire in a trio. And so, um, you know, he was influential in the music realm as well. Do I understand that at one point he ended up on the wrong side of a horn? He did, yes. Well, yeah, you really did your homework. He uh, he has a big scar right uh, right in his belly, and uh, yeah, it went uh, from a bull ride. It was from a bull ride. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, he's got quite the stories as well. So you've got all this family that you you use the word. I'll just follow it. You use the word crazy, um, and you've got now your at least four of you guys played hockey at a high level of the brothers. How does music? come into this story even remotely? Because it doesn't sound like, A, it's a musical kind of family, or B, that there would be time. Yeah, well, I, you know, I sure appreciate you saying that, Scott. That that means a lot. There's uh, In our family specifically, it was quite, quite simple in that uh, mom put us in piano, dad put us in hockey, and uh, we weren't allowed to go out and play hockey until our piano was practiced. And that's kind of how it was in our, <laughs> our house. We had two pianos in the house, and... Uh, we were required, uh, Dad put a premium on time usage, and, and we were required to take an instrument to, to make sure we were doing something on the musical front. And then, of course, we loved the hockey and loved the athletics, and that's more where Dad's passions lie uh, late. And so um, that was kind of how it went for us, and, and that was our normal. I think it wasn't until later that, uh, you know, we started realizing that maybe that wasn't 
completely normal, but for us, that's how life went. But the story actually goes back quite a ways further than that. Um, we talked about the athletics in Dad's family, but his father was actually a very good musician. He was self-taught in multiple instruments. And my dad's older three siblings, the two brothers that we talked about, and then his sister, sang in a trio that my grandfather accompanied. And uh, so music was a huge part of life growing up. I remember growing up on the farm and working in Grandpa's yard, and we'd come in for lunch, and uh, he would go over and sit down at the piano and start playing and invite us up on the piano bench beside him and would teach us courting and whatnot. And then on our other side of the family... Mum's side of the family, um, music was a huge part of their lives. Mum sang in choirs and just was always very passionate about anything performing, whether it was music or acting and whatnot. And uh, and so it kind of stretched a ways back. And our grandfather, from a very young age, would say to us boys, you know, boys, the hockey's great, because he loved it. He would take us to hockey tournaments and games all over the place. But he'd say, you know what, there's going to come a day when you have to take your skates off and hang them up but the music will last you your whole life. And, and he really displayed that for us. He passed away at the age of 87, and right up until two months before he passed away, he was still playing the saxophone and piano hmm. at his uh, villa in Medicine Hat, where him and his wife and grandma lived. And uh, so he really lived that out for us. So how then do, uh, well, let me back up. Do you remember the first time you ever performed not in the farm or not at the in in a home but somewhere public. Do you remember when you did that the first time? Yeah, there was a there was a gospel festival that started up down in our area 27 years ago. It was down in the Frenchman River Valley and uh and we got invited to sing and perform as a as just a local act and we had our 15 minute set that we practiced for and of course with dad's theatrics uh that he had learned in in the, in the ice show uh he would always have us doing you know some sort of choreographed steps to the to the music and whatnot and we'd practice those up and then sing at the local event and then they kind of spread from there but uh, we definitely remember those early days so it was like a country in sync <laughs> yeah, well, I guess so. Yeah, that's, a, that's maybe a good way of putting it. Were yeah, you as comfortable? Less coordinated. Well, were you as comfortable on the stage as you were on the rink? Because singing is a lot more exposed and a lot more intimate than playing hockey. Yeah, that's a you know that's a great uh, correlation to be made. Um, it wasn't long after I retired that uh, one of my head coaches from years past he coached me in Kelowna. And he's now the head coach of the Prince Albert Raiders, Mark Habscheid, and doing very mm. well there in the Western Hockey League. Uh, he came and saw us perform. We had opened for uh, Emerson Drive on a stage in, in Swift Current. And um, he said, you know, it's kind of neat because hockey, there's that adrenaline rush and that kind of exposed feeling of a game and, and having to, to perform at a high level that you experience there. And now you're kind of experiencing on stage. And it was one of the first times that I had kind of heard it put in that context and and it really kind of resonated and i think there's there's a lot of truth in that um you never know how a game's going to go you can set forth your you know your game plan and your systems and how you're going to uh react to certain systems that are thrown at you on the other hand it's a live game and anything can happen and you have to be prepared for that and there there's a lot of that in the music industry you can practice and know how to sing your notes but once you get on stage and you have a crowd that is reacting differently or lights or or technical gear that that all of a sudden doesn't quite work the way that you anticipate um you really are left exposed to to react and and that's part of the fun of both live show and i think live entertainment with sports 
Um, I think with a game of hockey, there was a there was a support system. That's one of the things that I loved is that you were collectively working together uh, towards a goal, whether that was just winning that game or a greater championship goal, and you really did rely on each other. I think on stage you are exposed maybe a little more to a sense but you're still equally uh, dependent on those around you. And if it being my brothers on stage, uh, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if, if something goes awry with one of you, you're really all left exposed. And so there are actually a number of, of similarities between the two and, and that adrenaline rush that you get and, and wanting to perform and do your best for, for people and those that have hired you and those that have put you on that stage. There's, there's actually a lot of things that, that resonate in both worlds. The amazing thing to me when I when I tried to pick up this story is that, again, you had three other brothers who were all playing, as I understand it, high-level, either pro, semi-pro, junior, whatever, high-level hockey at the same time you were. You get to 2008, I think it was, you're not offered a contract, and then what, within about a couple months, all three of them suffer significant injuries, and so suddenly you're all back home together in, uh, unexpectedly? Yeah, things really happened, and... Uh, you know, it can be chalked up to many different things and and uh, and uh, whatever, um, you know, your belief system is for us. We we, we felt that there was um, there was maybe a purpose behind it, even though at the time it seemed like a real downer. Dusty was the first one to go down with a significant eye injury. He took a, a stick in his right eye playing uh, professionally down in the States, and, and so he was actually the first one to come home. Uh, my brother Luke uh, also sustained an eye injury, which is so strange that the two brothers would, would sustain injuries, and that's what ended his career. Uh, my brother Brock was playing junior hockey, and uh, he had uh, he had some significant injuries um, that brought him back home. And for myself, I didn't I didn't necessarily uh, it wasn't a career ending injury, so to speak. I had my share of injuries along the way. Um, I had some shoulder um, issues, especially. Um, but you know, you're faced with life choices, and and uh, I made that. And you had mentioned not getting offered an NHL contract, and those things all played into the to the bigger decision and and so it was something where um each of us were faced with something significant in our lives and and all decided to come home at just about the same time uh within a close time span so uh it was it was very interesting and and we believe it was for a reason at the same time uh, you know life happens and things happen uh unexplainably sometimes and and uh, that's kind of how it worked for us so did you all look at each other right away and say well time to get the band back together yeah, and take the band-aids off because apparently, uh, you know, we can't cut it here with uh, with the injuries, <laughs> and uh, we're going to have to do something else. No, yeah, we we uh, the music was going on that whole time, and that's something that uh, we didn't talk about is that all those years that we were off playing junior and pro hockey, we'd come home to the farm once our seasons were done and help dad put the crop in the ground, and uh, we dig into training with our uncles up in, uh, with our uncle up in Calgary. Uh, but then on the weekends, uh, we really were kind of weekend warriors going and performing at gospel festivals and different things throughout Western Canada and even down into the States. And, and uh, that was kind of how life worked for us for many, many years. Hmm. And so the music never really ended. It just was on a very part-time basis, just for those few weekends in the summertime when we were home and available. Um, so then when we all came back to the farm, um, we, I think we all kind of had it in the back of our mind, at least to some degree, that I wonder if we pursued the music with the same intentionality that we had pursued the hockey with. 
if there'd be some opportunities and and we were very thankful that well there have been you guys you guys have won awards you've sold a ton of, you've sold a ton of albums you've you've got a, a great following now um you ever done a national anthem before anywhere for before a game we have we uh we performed them at uh at Rexall Place for the Oilers, we uh, did it actually for Ryan Smith's thousandth game down in LA at the Staples Center. Uh, we did a Saskatchewan Rough Riders game last summer and some junior and, and other pro games. So this is uh, nothing so then. This is nothing. You, you you could do this with, you know, without even practicing. Just show up. But this is the home opener <laughs> for the Blue Jays. This is really cool. Well, the one yeah, thing that is missing, we've got to let you go, sadly, but the one thing that is missing, I don't think they've been able to get you back here to now First Ontario Centre, Old Cops Coliseum, to do a Bulldogs game. We've got to get you back for a Bulldogs game. We would love to do that. Uh, Bulldogs had a lot of success last year. They, uh, they did really well. We'd love to come back and, and, uh, and do that someday when it works. Well, they came out to where you guys are, and then it kind of fell apart for them in the Memorial Cup. But you're right. They did have a, a terrific year. Now, just before I let you go, there are five of you. So for the people listening, when they tune in on Thursday to watch the opener and see you guys sing, how are they going to know which one is JJ? Um, I still have the hockey hair. I haven't been able to fully <laughs> cut the cord. All right. So look for the one with the best hair. Is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, JJ Hunter, l- really appreciate catching up. Glad to catch up and do this. And uh, we will be watching and enjoying what you do on Thursday at the Blue Jays game. Thanks for the time. Scott, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.